You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of August 24th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Arvada police hit with lawsuit after American Motel shooting death. Family of Destiny Delara Thompson working with lawyers by Lillian Fugle for the Arvada Press. Arvada City Council approves mixed-use developments in Candelas by Lillian Fugle for the Arvada Press. Foothills Arts Center finishing up work on Astor House Campus. Creative Campus off 15th Street reopening this fall by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. School Districts Ed Orgs Sue Polis over Universal Preschool Program by Erica Brinlin of the Colorado Sun. Shauna Ambrose joins Race for Arvada City Council District 2 by Lillian Fugle for the Arvada Press. And following up with various articles. Arvada Police with lawsuit, hit with lawsuit after American Motel shooting death. Family of Destiny, Delara Thompson working with lawyers by Lillian Fugle. Arvada Police issued a detailed press release regarding the 2021 shooting death of Destiny Delara Thompson in response to a lawsuit that was filed this month. Delara Thompson was a robbery suspect shot by an officer following an altercation but cleared of wrongdoing after her death. The law firm that filed the case, the Rothad Muhammad Bai Law Firm, is the same law firm that is representing another family in a case against the department. The law firm did not respond to an Arvada Press request for comment by deadline. Delara Thompson's family also could not be reached. A two-year statute of limitations for a civil suit was approaching when the case was filed. The shooting happened on August 17, 2021, as officers investigated reports of an armed robbery at the Targets in Wheat Ridge. The Arvada Police re- Press re- police press release said officers approached Delara Thompson at American Motel off Interstate 70. There, police asked her to identify herself, but she refused, police allege. Delara Thompson then entered her vehicle where a plainclothes officer spoke with her through a, the driver's side, police said. An unmarked police vehicle blocked Delara Thompson's vehicle from pulling out, but she attempted to drive out, hitting a vehicle, and then accelerated and jumped a curb police claim. An Arvada police officer fired at Delara Thompson and a bullet struck her and killed her. After an independent investigation of the shooting by the 1st Judicial District's Critical Incident Response Team, a district attorney ruled the officer was justified in the shooting. Delara Thompson was suspected of involvement in the robbery but later cleared by a 1st Judicial District Attorney's Office investigation. Arvada Police spokesperson Dave Stelling said officers engaged with Delara Thompson because she matched a suspect description from the robbery. Quote, we later learned that the woman at the Target was not the woman at the American Motel, Snelling said. It was a different suspect, but because they looked similar and had a similar description, officers had every reason to stop her because they thought it was the original suspect. Arvada City Council approves mixed-use development in Candelas by Lillian Fugle. Candelas will soon be seeing new mixed-use development at Candelas Parkway and McIntyre Street with townhomes, apartments, and retail space. At an Arvada City Council meeting on August 14th, Council voted 6-0 with Lisa Ferret absent in a public hearing regarding the development. The development, proposed by TriPoint Homes, will have 39 townhomes, 33 multifamily units, and 10,743 square feet of retail space. 
This was TriPoint's third public hearing regarding the proposal. City Council had previously voted against the development twice. In 2020, the proposal was vetoed due to initially being a fully residential development. In 2022, the proposal was vetoed due to concerns regarding parking, safety around a school bus stop, and density. During TriPoint's presentation to Council, representatives addressed issues previously raised with the development. The latest version of the plan includes an increase in parking, 10 spots were added, as well as decrease in density, three townhomes were removed. Other changes include a decrease in maximum building height. Townhomes were reduced from 35 feet to 25 feet, while mixed-use buildings were reduced from 45 feet to 40 feet. Additionally, some changes were made for increased pedestrian safety, including curb bump-outs and crossing signs with flashing lights. Quote, We believe we have found the balance, Marcus Pachner, a consultant to TriPoint, said during the hearing. This will work and serve the neighborhood. During the public comment portion of the public hearing, several community members raised concerns regarding drainage, safety issues, and impact on the community. Quote, We envisioned ourselves walking to a local restaurant or grabbing a cup of coffee from a local coffee shop, Aaron Bott said. The idea that TriPoint has sold to us today is not what's being presented today. Other commenters expressed support for the idea of the development, but still had concerns. Quote, I feel like TriPoint has worked to get to a point where they're meeting what their intentions were and what the community hopes for, Laura Carpenter said during public comment. I'm partly in support of what's going on with this development and partly concerned about what it may bring. Ultimately, the development was conditionally approved on the condition that the building's garages are used for parking as well as the condition that the developers work with neighbors to the west to address drainage and privacy fencing issues. You have a good image, Councilman Bob Pfeiffer said to TriPoint. If you want to leave a good legacy in the community, this is your chance. School Districts, Ed Orgs, Sue Polis over Universal Preschool Program by Erica Brunlin, The Colorado Sun. Six Colorado school districts and two education organizations are suing Governor Jared Polis, the Colorado State Board of Education, and state education agencies and leaders as districts begin the first classes of preschool under Colorado's newly expanded preschool program. The lawsuit, filed in Denver District Court, alleges that a lack of access to enrollment information from the Colorado Department of Early Childhood Continued changes to funding and resulting complications around serving students with disabilities are compromising the plaintiff's ability to run preschool programs that meet the needs of families and comply with federal and state law. Leaders from both the school districts and education organizations gathered for a media briefing on August 17th, shortly before the lawsuit was filed. The plaintiffs include Brighton School District 27J, Cherry Creek School District, Harrison School District 2, Mapleton Public Schools, Platte Valley School District, and Westminster Public Schools, the Colorado Association of School Executives, and the Consortium of Directors of Special Education are also listed as plaintiffs. In addition to Polis and the Colorado State Board of Education. They are suing the Colorado Department of Education, Educational Commissioner Susanna Cordova, the Colorado Department of Early Childhood, and its Executive Director, Lisa Roy. In a text message, Connor Cahill, a spokesman for Polis, wrote that the state will, quote, vigorously defend this landmark program in court so that even more families can benefit from preschool. While it's unfortunate to see different groups of adults attempting to co-opt preschool for themselves, perhaps because they want to not allow gay parents to send their kids to preschool, or they want to favor school district programs over community-based early childhood centers, the voters were clear on their support for parent choice and a universal mixed delivery system that is independently run, that doesn't discriminate against anyone who and offers free preschool to every child, no matter who their parents are, Cahill wrote. CDEC could not immediately be reached for comment. 
District leaders who are part of the lawsuit describe a dizzying set of challenges that they have long been concerned about. Dating back to the first days, the state began designing its new preschool program, known as Universal Preschool. Now with the program in full motion and major questions remaining over enrollment and funding, districts are suing to get full access to CDEC's enrollment system so they can have more control over how they fill their classrooms. Quote, The school year has started, and incredibly problematic events of Universal Preschool have been raised over and over again and have not been addressed, said Brett Miles, executive director of CASE. We're truly disappointed to be forced to file this claim as we've shared with CDEC, the governor's office, and CDE for months, and they did not address not address our serious legal issues, end quote. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more information and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Shauna Ambrose joins Race for Arvada City Council District 2 by Lillian Fuglet. As election season draws nearer, a new candidate has entered the race for city council, Shauna Ambrose. Ambrose is running in the race for the District 2 seat, which is currently occupied by Lauren Simpson. Simpson had previously filed a run in District 2, but dropped out of the race to run for mayor. Currently, the, there are three other candidates in District 2. Merle Hendrickson, who was previously covered by the Arvada Press in April, as well as Michael Griffith and Bob Loveridge, who were previously covered by the Arvada Press in July. Ambrose said her background as a minister, veteran, and union leader pushed her toward running for council. I think I just have the right experience of government and social services to be able to make real, well-rounded decisions, Ambrose said. In addition to the work that has pushed her toward running for council, Ambrose believes her work with nonprofit certification prepared her for council because it often involved working with governments. For Ambrose, one of those most important issues is helping local businesses. One way of doing this, she proposed, is eliminating sales tax on local businesses in order to incentivize customers to shop local. Quote, I want to make sure that our local businesses really thrive because I think that the local connections are the most important thing that makes neighborhoods resilient, Ambrose said. Affordable housing is also important to Ambrose. She wants to ensure that housing originally created as affordable housing stays affordable even as prices rise. Ambrose also wants to make sure that as new housing developments are created, they bring communities together. Quote, The other thing that I think is important about an urban renewal is that we have a mix of incomes, said Ambrose. I think that's what we really need to be careful of as a city, that we don't just let the social dynamics that have put rich people over here and poor people over here, and that we are intentional about making sure the community really has a diversity of class. For Ambrose, public safety is another concern. She wants to ensure that Arvada's police officers are supported in doing their work. For Ambrose, this would mean support for officers' mental health, but also using mental health co-responders and social workers so that police officers aren't the only ones showing up. We've had really terrible tragedies with our police department that it's just so painful to think about how the police officers have given their lives, said Ambrose. How do we support the officers that we have? How can we reduce the burden? I'm just really excited to actually do service for my city in this particular way, Ambrose said. Foothills Art Center finishing up work on Astor House Campus. Creative Campus off 15th Street reopening this fall. By Corinne Westman. Fall goes according to plan. Foothills Art Center's long-awaited Astor House Campus will open later this year. FAC started renovating and building onto the historic structure at 822 12th Street last May with plans to finish this month. However, Executive Director Hassan Najjar said this project's hit delays and other challenges that have made the opening date, quote, 
a moving target. Still, Najjar and board president Melanie Smith were hopeful the bulk of the campus will be ready this year. Some exterior work, including the landscaping, must wait until spring. FAC is leading, leasing the former boarding house museum, which had been unused for about six years, from the city of Golden. Smith said FAC is using grants and private donations to pay for the $4.2 million project. Once done, the historic Astor House will contain gallery space, a reading room, a meeting room, and offices. Meanwhile, the adjacent addition will serve as the main entrance with multiple galleries. Admission will be free. Additionally, FAC's also been renovating its 809 15th Street property as its new creative campus with dozens of studios and classrooms. Working. Work started this spring, and Najjar said the building will reopen this fall, likely before the Astor House is done. Since both campuses have been under construction since April, Smith said fellow nonprofits and community members have generously donated their spaces for FAC's May member events. The members have enjoyed exploring the Mines Museum of Earth Science, the Rocky Mountain Quilt Museum, the Colorado Railroad Museum, and others this year, and generally experiencing places they might not go otherwise. While navigating all the construction-related hurdles has been challenging, Smith believed FAC members, the Golden Community and beyond, will, quote, see great value in having these updated campuses and what they provide to the community as two great art spaces. The Astor House Campus. During a tour of the Astor House construction sites, August 15th, Najjar outlined how everything will be situated once the campus opens. The main entrance will be in the new building, which is on the Astor House's north side. People will enter from Arapahoe Street, which Najjar, Najjar said will offer the better accessibility and amenities than entering through the Astor House itself would. Just inside the main entrance on the addition's first floor will be a small community gallery. There will be a stairway and elevator to take people up to the second floor, which will have the largest gallery space on the campus, Najjar said. The addition's second floor will continue into the Astor House's second floor, which will feature a reading room, a new bathroom, offices, and a meeting room. Smith added how the reading room will be unique, describing it as a quiet escape in the middle of downtown Golden. On the building's east side, there will be a shared deck overlooking downtown Golden, South Table Mountain, and North Table Mountain. Then on the Astor House's main floor, FAC will have a hands-on gallery space on the north side, and then a medium-sized gallery on the 12th Street side. Visitors will not be able to enter the Astor House off 12th Street, he clarified. The former entrance is now going to be an emergency exit only. Outside FAC's, FAC is putting in a yard on the property's north side, which will host concerts and other events. Dejar described the area as, quote, lots of grass, lots of trees along with outdoor seating, courtesy thanks to a grant from Golden Civic Foundation and Molson Coors. The exterior of the new building will feature a lot of glass, so that depending on the angle, people can almost look through the new building to see the Astor House, Najjar explained. It'll also help visitors spot the art galleries from the street and pique their interest. The new building's east side will also feature a mural. Overall, Najjar and Smith believed FAC will serve more people with this new location, as those visiting downtown will stop in while visiting downtown Golden. They were excited to share the arts with more people, with Najjar highlighting how close and relaxed the gallery spaces will be. Quotes, our mission is to create stronger community through art, she continued. We really want to expand that reach. Wildland fires, firefighters need our support, 
Local Voices. Riders on the Range, Gregory McNamee. At any given moment during this smoky summer of 2023, hundreds of wildfires were blazing in the United States, more than 850 as of late July, according to the nonprofit Fire, Weather, and Avalanche Center. Most of those wildfires ignited in the forests of the American West. Fires were also burning by the thousands in Canada, creating a pall of particulate-dense smoke that blotted out views of the Chicago skyline and the Washington Mall. Those fires are expected to burn well into this fall. This hellish aspect lends weight to historian Stephen Pine's conclusion that we now live in an age of fire called the Pyrocene. Assembled to combat these blazes is a massive army of wildland firefighters. Some are volunteers, some are prison work crews earning time credited against their sentences. Some are municipal firefighters dispatched to the woods. Some 11,300 of them are federal firefighters called forestry technicians who work under the aegis, aegis of the Department of Ag- Agriculture and the Department of the Interior. For all of them, it's exhausting work. Wildland firefighters typically log 16-hour days for weeks at a time, burning 4,000 to 6,000 calories a day while carrying heavy backpacks. It's punishing labor and always dangerous. Barely a year has gone by in the last quarter century that has not seen at least 15 wildland firefighter deaths. The victims not just of flames and smoke, but also of heat exhaustion, vehicle accidents, air crashes, falling trees, and heart attacks. Often they don't die alone. In June 2013, 19, quote, hot shots burned to death in a horrific Arizona wildfire, the third greatest loss of wildland firefighters in U.S. history. Yet, despite the hardships in the history, a mandated pay raise in June 2021 spurred by President Joe Biden, brought the minimum wage for federal wildland firefighters up to a mere $15 an hour. Firefighters of my acquaintance seldom cite money as a motivator for their work. They fight fires in the spirit of public service. On some rural communities, as a young Apache firefighter told me, quote, it gives us something to do. But firefighters, like everyone else, must shoulder rents and mortgages and groceries. And a paycheck of less than $3,000 a month just doesn't cut it. Enter a temporary order from President Biden Biden raising that base pay by 50%. Put in place in August 2022 and retroactive to the previous October, as part of a hotly contested package of infrastructure funding policies, the pay raise was funded only until... September 30th, 2023, after which pay for wildland firefighters drops back to 2020 levels. Wildland firefighters lobbied for Biden's pay raise to be made permanent, but they made few inroads. That was until they finally found an ally in Arizona's Senator Kirsten Sinema, now an independent Cinema allied with Republican Senators John Barrasso of Wyoming and Steve Daines of Montana and Democrats, Democratic Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and John Tester of Montana to introduce the Bipartisan Wildland Firefighter Paycheck Protection Act. It would fund permanent pay increases. By late June of 2023, their bill had passed out of a committee by a vote of 10 to 1, the only no vote coming from Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. When it reaches the Senate floor, it will be open to debate and a full vote. There, however, the politicians are likely to squabble, especially on the House side. Larger issues loom, too, such as the need to revise policy so that forests are better managed to improve the conditions that now foster massive wildfires, Those conditions are the product of, quote, a wise use. 
regime that saw forests as profitable tree farms and not as living systems. The Forest Service also had a decades-long policy of dousing all wildfires as early as possible. While Washington deliberates, and while a more comprehensive bill compensating wildland firefighters struggles to gain traction, fires continue to burn in the outback. Without a pay raise, federal officials fear some firefighters will walk away from a risky and insultingly low-paying job. Wildland firefighters are needed right now, and we need to pay them what they deserve through the Wildland Firefighter Paycheck Protection Act. They will be needed even more in a future of climbing temperatures and widespread drought causing even more massive wildfires. We can only hope that we will have the firefighters to confront them. Gregory McNamee is a contributor to Riders on the Range, RidersOnTheRange.org, an independent nonprofit dedicated to spurring lively conversation about the West. He is an author and journalist in Tucson. Garden Conservancy returns with open days. Coming attractions by Clark Reader. As we roll into late summer here in Colorado, we're also entering the best time of the year to be outside. Things are starting to cool off just a little, and you can feel hints of autumn in the air. It's a great time to focus on nature, and the Garden Conservancy's Open Days program is back to showcase the beauty of the natural world on a small scale with private gardens from around the metro area. Quote, the mission of the program is to open up the private gardens of folks so they can share them, said Dr. H. Horatio Joyce, Director of Public Programs and Education with the Conservancy. This is something that most gardeners don't get to do the rest of the year. Share something that takes a huge amount of time. Presented by Denver Botanic Gardens, the Denver Open Days on Saturday, August 26th and features four new gardens. Grumman's Desert Garden in Lakewood. This garden demonstrates the innovative possibilities of a low-water approach to gardening. Summer Home in Denver, an inner-city Zerich Pocket Garden that aims to educate and inspire other gardeners, creates a community atmosphere, and discourage overdevelopment. Jim and Dorothy's Garden in Denver, a garden with about 10,000 homegrown Western native plants, all of which highlight the importance of harmonious existence with native. Pine Gardens in Centennial. This garden includes a rock alpine garden, woodland patio, water feature, and shade gardens. Each garden features a radically different approach to the world of gardening. According to Joyce, what makes each of the Denver Gardens special this year is they're all nature-friendly. So they take into their design and implementation the effect they have on the environment. This can mean planting with native species, cutting down on irrigation and other environmentally friendly approaches. Quote, we're in a really interesting moment all over the country, Joyce said. We're seeing people learn how to garden in really beautiful ways, even faced with a lot of challenges. For those who attend, not only will they have great reason to spend some time outside, but they will hopefully come away with some ideas to try in their own gardens. Going to an outstanding botanical garden can be intimidating, and there's something really scientific about it, Joyce said. But during open days, the best part is always the people. Whether they're new gardeners or advanced, it's the gathering of different people, and it's a really inspiring and buoying experience. For all the details, visit gardenconservancy.org slash open dash days slash open dash days dash schedule slash Denver dash metropolitan dash area dash co dash open dash day. Explore the healing power of art at DIA. You may not think of Denver International Airport, 8500 Pena Boulevard as a place to see art. But the airport is home to 
From War to Words, an exhibit featuring the artwork, portraits, and song lyrics made by Creativets. The work can be found on Concourse A. According to provided information, Creativets is a nonprofit organization with the mission of empowering wounded veterans and healing through arts and music. The works on display include collages and mixed-media sculptures and was created thanks to partnerships with a range of universities and art schools around the country. The photos were taken by Jason Myers and song lyrics were made in collaboration with artists like Vince Gill. More information can be found at www.flydenver.com. The story of three quilters at the Rocky Mountain Quilt Museum. Quilting is one of those art forms that provides the viewer with not only an example of powerful storytelling, but also something tangible that they can carry with them for the rest of their lives. The latest exhibit at the Rocky Mountain Quilt Museum, 200 Violet Street, Unit 140 in Golden, examines the work of three quilters and the stories of their lives. Three Women Who Quilt runs through Saturday, October 14th and features work by Leah McComas, Sharon Schlotzauer, and Jane Matthews. Each artist uses the exhibit to showcase the way they produce their works and the stories they're interested in sharing with the world. All you need to know can be found at www.rmqm.org. And Clark's Concert of the Week, City and Color at Summit Music Hall. Takes real talent to make music as pretty and cheese-free as singer-songwriter City and Color, whose real name is Dallas Green, does on his latest album, The Love Still Held Me Near. City and Color has been making music for nearly 20 years, but this might be his best release to date. The album is nuanced and layered and just devastatingly pretty. In support of the record... City and Color will be stopping by Summit Music Hall, 1902 Blake Street in Denver at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, August 29th. He'll be joined by opener Jay Jail for a night that is sure to be powerful and enchanting. Get tickets for the show at LiveNation.com. Clark Concerts, Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an E dot reader at hotmail.com. And thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Cars and Cigars, Giving Back to the Community by Adrian Michael. From Denverite, I'll be reading How Does a Beer Scavenger Hunt Along Colfax Avenue Sound by Rebecca Tauber. And Parents Scramble, Kids Celebrate as Extreme Heat Disrupts DPS's First Week of Classes by Matt Bloom. From Westward, I'll be reading Environmental Groups Sue Air Quality Commission Over per Permitting Rules by Katie Cheshire and Codebreaker Alan Turing's Belongings Returned to England from Conifer by Patricia Calhoun. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Cars and Cigars, Giving Back to the Community, by Adrian Michael. The Cigar Lords held its first car show recently to increase engagement and foster meaningful connections with their community. The Aurora-based cigar, cigar Lords launched their 501c3 nonprofit organization in 2016 when a group of five men bonded over their shared enjoyment of cigars. It wasn't long after that that they decided to be more than a social group and work together to make a difference in the community. We're pushing ourselves to get bigger because the more we can give, the better things are, said Cigar Lords President C.J. Johnson. We have a lot of guys who want to give back because somebody gave to them. 
They understand the feeling of how satisfying it can be to make someone's day, no matter how big or small. That's one of the best feelings ever. People see the Cigar Lord's name, but they don't know the guys behind the brand. So our idea is to go ahead and give back and meet as many people as we can because it helps us grow. Johnson reached out to Smolder Lounge, which is also based in Aurora, to join forces with them in their effort to give back. Heather M. Lynn, who owns Smolder Lounge, did not hesitate to accept. We partnered with the Cigar Lords since we have a big voice, Lynn said. We also own the Gentleman's Groom Room Barbershop next to Smolder Lounge, so we can reach more people, help get the word out, and help get the community involved. The more people involved, the more people can help, Lynn said. We really want to get involved in the community and get the community back together because COVID took everyone and put them in a little turtle shell. And before COVID, it seemed like everyone really wanted to help everybody. And now it just seems like everybody is very much in their little niche, and I want to be helping them get out of that. Smolder Lounge is an inclusive cigar lounge that has been in business for 11 years. We want everyone, no matter what they do for a living, their color or age, to feel comfortable and feel more like family than it is a clique. For the 2023 holiday season, the Cigar Lords and Smolder Lounge will host a turkey giveaway in November and a toy drive in December. According to Johnson, the Cigar Lords plan to create events where they're doing more than giveaways, like mentoring, as well as advocating for social justice and mental health care. Our goal is to be able to help everyone. We believe in teach one, reach one, Johnson said. The next two articles are from Denverite. How does a beer scavenger hunt along Colfax Avenue sound? By Rebecca Tauber. If Colfax Avenue was a beer, what would it taste like? Cerebral Brewing interpreted the famous infamous Rhodes flavor in its new beer, Neon Light a light lager that pays tribute to the street's many historic neon signs and dive bar culture. The beer's label plays tribute to the Aurora Fox Art Center's neon sign, next to Cerebral's location in Aurora Arts District. The taproom's other location is along Colfax in Congress Park. With two locations on Colfax, it's kind of become our home, so to speak, and it's such an iconic street, said Allie McKinley, Cerebral's marketing manager. We kind of wanted to make neon light with a tribute to our home street and recognize the many neon lights along Colfax. Customers can get a card at one of Cerebral's two locations and fill it with stamps by ordering the beer at a number of bars and music venues along Colfax. People who finish the quest get prizes ranging from free beers to gift cards up to $100 and Colfax-themed merchandise. McKinley said Colfax Quest is part of a bigger push to collaborate with local businesses along Colfax. Cerebral partnered with 303 Boards, a skateboard shop along Colfax, to create a limited edition label for Neon Light. Next week, the brewery is coming out with a new label and merchandise in partnership with Coloradical, another retail shop on Colfax. Neon Light is also being sold at Colfax's historic Bluebird Theater. We really wanted to involve all of our neighbors on Colfax, McKinley said. McKinley said one customer finished the quest in just three days. The route includes 12 stops along Colfax, plus Cerebral's two locations. The brewery is planning two Colfax bar bar crawls before the quest ends on September 17th. Parents scramble, kids celebrate as extreme heat disrupts DPS's first week of classes. By Matt Bloom. On her second day of third grade, Emma Hawk packed a few pencils in a Hello Kitty backpack along with a water bottle full of ice and a fan. Hawk ended up not needing them for long. Her school, Polaris Elementary in Denver's Five Points neighborhood, cut classes short on Tuesday due to extreme heat and a lack of air conditioning. Polaris was one of more than a dozen schools in the district that sent students home early after highs hovered close to 100 degrees. At least 17 schools also planned an early release on Wednesday, as leaders expected temperatures in classrooms without A.C. to jump above 80 degrees. We didn't do a lot of learning. 
Hawk said about her shortened first day as her parents picked her up from school on Tuesday. We just tried to meet each other more. Reed Hawk, her dad, adjusted his work schedule to come pick his daughter up around lunchtime. The school announced the heat day release via email the night before, so he had a little heads up to adjust his day around it, he said. Obviously, she's the priority, so we kind of make do, he said. I think the school is trying their best to keep everyone safe. Heat has become a perennial issue for the district's older buildings. At least 43 schools don't have fully air-conditioned facilities. When temperatures rise in classrooms, it can disrupt learning. Anything higher than 79 degrees can also pose health risks, along with significantly negative impacts on test performance and knowledge retention, according to the U.S. Department of Education. Last year, many schools without AC units lost about a week of classroom time due to early release heat days, said Scott Pribble, DPS's communications director. While we understand it's an inconvenience for many families, they understand the importance of why we're doing the work that we're doing, Pribble said. Many of the district's buildings were constructed before AC was considered a given for new buildings. School years were also shorter and didn't start as early in the summer as they do now, Pribble said. The district has tried to upgrade facilities with AC units in recent years. Voters passed a bond measure in 2020 to fund renovations at 24 schools. So far, it has upgraded at least 11. The rest will be done by 2024. Since COVID, we've run into supply chain issues, which has delayed some AC projects, Pribble said. It's invasive work that can't be done when students are in the building, so that limits us. At least 30 more schools in the district need AC, but funding has not yet been secured for them, he added. Schools have tried other cooling methods, such as placing floor fans in classes and opening windows. Still, heat days have emerged as the best solution to ensure safety at DPS. Parents and teacher unions generally support the idea, since it prioritizes students' and staff's well-being. On Tuesday, parents lined up in cars outside of Polaris Elementary School to pick up students around lunchtime. Tope Dimmer leaned against the school's chain-link fence looking for her first-grade daughter. She took a half-day at work to pick up her kids early. It can be difficult to accommodate, Dimmer said. This is our first heat day ever. Dimmer's two sons, also students at Polaris, hung around as they waited for their sibling to come outside. Third grader Aide sketched in a coloring book while he waited. Are we going to watch a movie? Aide asked his mom. I think we're going to stay inside, yes, his mom said. To Lu, a fifth grader, announced that his teacher had assigned him extra homework to make up for the missed class time. He wants us to stay intact, Tolu said. Even if we miss a day, we don't want to move backwards. Once that's out of the way, it's playtime. The following articles are from Westward. Environmental Groups Sue Air Quality Commission Over Permitting Rules by Katie Cheshire. The Colorado Air Quality Control Commission acted contrary to the state's landmark Environmental Justice Act, when it created a new rule for air permits in disproportionately impacted communities earlier this year, say some environmental groups. Represented by the environmental firm Earth Justice, community organizations Green Latinos, 350 Colorado, and Earthworks filed a lawsuit in state court on Monday, August 21st, challenging the new rule and asking that it be sent back for revisions. The rule centers around extra protections in Title IV Clean Air Act permits for disproportionately impacted communities where the proportion of households that are low income, that identify as minority, or that are housing cost burdened is greater than 40%, according to state officials. It includes enhanced modeling and modern monitoring requirements for new or modified air pollution sources and requires that all permit applicants submit an environmental justice summary with their application and install any control technology that is technolo technologically and financially feasible for the pollution source to install. The state's new rule doesn't require enough source-specific monitoring, charges the lawsuit, and it limits enhanced modeling to a small set of polluters and pollutants 
while dividing disproportionately impacted communities which have historically borne the brunt of pollution into two groups. Residents are sick and tired of the pollution and want the state to do something about it. Enough is enough, says Lucy Molina, a frontline community organizer for 350 Colorado who has long pushed to hold the Suncor oil refinery in Commerce City accountable. It's frustrating. The system is working as designed, and it's not designed for the people. The Environmental Justice Act, passed in 2021, aims to correct historical inequities and protect communities from pollution. It directed the AQCC to adopt enhanced modeling and monitoring requirements in disproportionately impacted communities, such as the neighborhoods around Suncor. These modeling and source-specific monitoring requirements are necessary to meet the goal of reducing pollution in those communities, in part because neither the state nor the DI communities can successfully reduce pollution without reliable data on the source and quantity of those pollutants, argues the Earth Justice lawsuit. When we look at the rulemaking that occurred, we don't see that there was sufficient air monitoring, says Patricia Garcia Nelson, fossil fuel just transition advocate for green Latinos. What we would have liked to have seen is some sort of strong protection for communities. Under the AQCC's May ruling, very few sites would be required to do source-specific monitoring, which is necessary to combat pollution, according to the lawsuit. Instead, most entities applying for a permit would have to pay a community monitoring fee ranging from $50 to $750 per relevant pollutant to contribute to monitoring in the general area. Ian Coghill, of the, one of the Earth Justice attorneys in charge of the suit, says that the statute clearly intends for monitoring to be source-specific rather than just occurring in these communities. For me, it really is personal because I have been working on getting air monitoring at Bella Romero Academy in Greeley, and so I know what it's like to be a parent that's concerned about your child's safety, Garcia Nelson says. She got involved with environmental justice while opposing a fracking project planned right next to the school where her son was a student five years ago. Since then, she's worked to get air pollution monitors for the school. She calls the new fee system proposed by the AQCC laughable. Garcia Nelson says she partnered with 350 Colorado to get a $500,000 grant from the EPA to monitor the air near Bella Romero and another school in Greeley. That amount will allow for 18 months of monitoring. This is why she's suspicious about whether fees, hovering around a maximum of $5,000 per permit, will actually provide enough funding to implement air monitoring at all. It's a form of keeping people complacent, Molina says. Look, oh look, we're doing something, but we're really not. These entities have been allowed by our own government to self-regulate. The baby became a teenager. He's got an attitude now, and we're trying to calm him down, and it's out of control. As the suit alleges, the AQCC ruling doesn't explain how the community monitoring program will work, its anticipated cost, the number of sources involved, or the rationale for the fee schedule. There's no justification for why the fee table was appropriate or even what it's going to accomplish, Coghill points out. Environmental groups also take issue with the fact that the AQCC ruling didn't apply the stricter permit requirements to any hazardous air pollutants other than benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylene, which are specifically named in the law. Although the Environmental Justice Act allows the Commission to do so, it didn't, despite the groups suggesting several that would be relevant. The Earth Justice Coalition also estimates that in any case, out of the nearly 5,000 air pollution permits the state issues per year, Fewer than 100 would be subject to enhanced modeling or source-specific monitoring for those four pollutants. It's simply just part of our job to say no and to push our agency leaders and our industry leaders to do the best that they can, Garcia Nelson says. I simply don't believe that they can't do better. Lastly, the lawsuit argues that the AQCC shouldn't have used its environmental mapping tool, EnviroScreen, to divide communities into cumulatively impacted communities and socioeconomically vulnerable communities. 
permit applicants would only have to do modeling or monitoring on site in cumulatively impacted communities. The rest would just pay the community monitoring fee to which the lawsuit also objects. The problem is that EnviroScreen uses a criteria of 35 different factors to determine the level at which a community is impacted by pollution, and only five of them relate to air pollution. According to the Earth Justice suit, only 139 of the 310 areas that meet the definition of a disproportionately impacted community and score high on EnviroScreen for air toxics emissions would be classified as cumulatively impacted communities under the AQCC rule. It's actually cutting a large number of communities that could potentially benefit the most from more monitoring or modeling out, Coghill notes. Beyond that, it just isn't right to separate disproportionately impacted communities into classes, the plaintiffs argue. We definitely feel that when holding the industry accountable for monitoring to protect public health, it needs to be the same across the board, Garcia Nelson says. Everybody deserves to be protected. In a joint statement sent to Westward, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment said the AQCC said they are both aware of the lawsuit and are reviewing it. The department and the commission remain committed to protecting air quality for all Coloradans, no matter where they live, the statement says. The rule amendments the commission adopted in May of 2023 demonstrate this commitment by taking full advantage of the authority granted by the Colorado Environmental Justice Act in incorporating feedback from community members and other stakeholders that strengthened the rule. The CDPHE is committed to doing more to help impacted communities when it comes to air pollution, the, the statement adds. The department has always prioritized the health and well-being of every Coloradan and knows there's still more work to do. The goal of the Earth Justice Coalition is to see all pollution sources required to conduct source-specific modeling and a decrease in air pollution in communities as those sources are held accountable. The state needs to be a better example, Molina concludes. Other states are looking to the work we've done, and we can do better. Codebreaker Alan Turing's Belongings Returned to England from Conifer by Patricia Calhoun it was a long time coming. Historical items belonging to Alan Turing, the legendary British mathematician and codebreaker, were returned to the Sherborne School in Dorset, England during a special ceremony this week. The artifacts, including Turing's PhD diploma from Princeton University, an Order of the British Empire medal, a personal note from King George VI of England, a number of school reports, and various photos, had been taken from the school archives nearly 40 years ago by a woman named Julia Shingholmes, who claimed to be a relative. In early 2018, federal agents seized them during a raid on the conifer home of Julia Turing, who'd changed her name from Shingholmes because she felt she was the spiritual daughter of Alan Turing. Most people learned about Alan Turing through The Imitation Game, a 2014 biopic starring Benedict Cumberbatch. They learned about Julia Turing when the U.S. Attorney's Office filed a complaint accusing her of stealing his belongings from his alma mater. Alan Turing had attended the school from 1926 to 1931, and the items were originally placed there by his family in the 60s. According to a complaint filed in U.S. District Court in the District of Colorado, U.S. authorities learned of the existence of the Turing artifacts when they were offered for display at the University of Colorado in Boulder in 2018. After an investigation by Homeland Security Investigations revealed that they'd been removed illegally from the Sherborne School, the U.S. Attorney's Office took action and the feds organized the Conifer raid. The matter was ultimately resolved in a settlement. Together with Homeland Security Investigations, our office ensured that historical artifacts belonging to Alan Turing are now back in the place where they belong, said U.S. Attorney Cole Finnegan in an announcement of the deal. We celebrate the accomplishments of Alan Turing and are thrilled that the historical significance of these artifacts will continue to be appreciated by scholars and generations to come. Sir Alan Turing was named a national hero for the crucial role he played in cracking coded messages during World War II, 
enabling the Allies to defeat the Axis powers, said HSI Special Agent in Charge Ryan L. Spradling. I'm very proud that HSI Denver investigators and our partners at the U.S. Attorney's Office were able to recover his effects after being missing for nearly 40 years. Colorado Springs gets schooled on inappropriate sexual and violent content in the Bible by Teague Bolin. Academy School District 20 in Colorado Springs removed three books from its libraries after receiving a letter of complaint from a conservative activist group called Advocates for D20 Kids earlier this summer. Ellen Hopkins's Identical, Rachel Vale's Lucky, and Sapphire's Push, the novel upon which the Academy Award-winning film Precious was based. That move inspired the Freedom From Religion Foundation to suggest one more book that should be removed based on the same criteria of inappropriate sexual and violent content, the Bible. A parent of a student from District 20 reached out to us, explained FFRF attorney and spokesperson Chris Line. She was concerned not only that these books had been removed, but how and how quickly. We shared her concern that this outside group, Advocates for D20 Kids, had not only had their voices heard, but heard immediately. Both we and that parent reached out to the district to suggest that if they were going to ban these books, then the Bible should be banned as well. Not because it's a religious book, but if you have a problem with graphic sexual content and violence, then based on the sheer amount of that in the Bible, you should ban that too. In the FFRF's June 21st letter to the district, Lyon goes into great detail as to how, exactly how and where the Bible gets into such issues, referencing passages such as Ezekiel 23, 20-21, in which a prostitute lusted after her lovers whose genitals were like those of donkeys and whose omission was like that of horses, and who longed for the lewdness of your youth when her bosom was caressed and young breasts fondled. Or Genesis 19, which recounts another sordid and preposterous story that defames incest victims as it recounts the exploits of two daughters who, having just witnessed a genocide and the murder of their mother by a pyromaniacal god, supposedly got their father drunk and seduced him in order to bear his children. Then there's Leviticus, which describes sperm, intercourse, menstruation, homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, and whores. And Numbers depicts a holy man impaling a woman through her belly and describes in loving detail how to steal and rape virgins as war booty. As anyone who studied the Bible can tell you, there's a lot more where that came from. The FFRF offered Academy School District 20 a choice. You can either stand by your criteria for banning books and ditch the Bible, too, or admit your actions were in error and reinstate the three books. Which is really what we want, Lyon says. That's important to understand. We don't want books to be banned. We're advocates of education and freedom of thought. Book banning is bad. There's no true freedom of thought, conscious or even religion, unless government and our public schools are free from religion and its control over thought. Within a month, the district admitted that the way it had gone about removing those books was in error and reinstated the three novels. After careful consideration, its response to FFRF notes, the district assures that the removal of library materials will be based on established policies and procedures. That's not exactly a guarantee that the retention of these books, and many like them, often written by underrepresented groups in terms of both race and sexual orientation, is a done deal. So we're not completely out of the woods, Lyon says. These books could still be challenged through the district, but we were able to stop this. It's an important victory for now, but there's so much more to be done. Derek Wilburn a candidate for the D20 school board this November and a member of Advocates for D20 Kids, went on record in a Colorado Gazette guest editorial in May supporting the initial complaint regarding the books, comparing them to learning about anal sex and blowjobs. Neither Wilborn nor his campaign returned emails inviting comment on the book ban, 
and no one else from Advocates for D20 Kids could be reached. The group's website shows up as suspended, offering only a generic landing page that promises to be back soon. District officials did not respond to requests for comment, but the FFRF has plenty to say. We trust students to explore these subjects for themselves, Line 